the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. What, me again? My goodness, they barely get a break. I've got the honor of having our illustrious operations manager driving the controls here this afternoon. And I'm just thinking, Mike, we just did this like 23 hours ago. We don't even give them 24-hour respite and just boom, right back in again, huh? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. (laughs) Right. Well, hey, just kidding. It's always a delight to spend some time with you wherever you might be headed on this Thursday. The put the specs on here. 18th, 19th day. A time flies when you're having fun. 19th day of October. And Craig Roberts keeping the company right up until seven o'clock tonight. Hey, we've got a great guest for Church of the Week coming up. Boy, are you going to be blessed by this conversation. Pastor Manny Pereira. Um, He's He's funny, he's brilliant, he's engaging, and he's somebody you won't want to miss. So stay with us for that conversation coming up tonight in the 6 o'clock hour. We'll also have our dear friend from the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus, drop in for an update on a major victory out of the city of Seattle, Washington. And Dr. Stephen Quay will join us. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and there is some startling new research available that... um, kind of hones in on some of the early developmental issues related to breast cancer, particularly among prepubescent girls. And when I tell you what it is, you're going to think, how come nobody ever talked about that before? That makes perfect sense. Yeah, it does. We'll share with you what that is coming up a little bit later on in our conversation. My next guest had the court system had their way would be talking to us from a telephone located on a wall inside of a prison. He, in fact, cleared back in 1977. This is before cell phones, the Internet, and Elon Musk (laughs) had been sentenced to a life sentence. And little did he imagine when the gavel came down and that sentence was delivered that Ten years into his life sentence, he would go from serving a life sentence to experiencing eternal life. And in fact, escaping the most important penal system that all of us may potentially one day face were it not for the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Gene McGuire joins us. Gene is the author of a couple of books, Unshackled, From Ruins to Redemption, and a new book called Life After Unshackled. He is formerly, as I mentioned, incarcerated for life on a murder charge after having served, get this, 35 years. And Gene, God bless you. Thank you so much for being with us on the program today. I I just got to wonder at the onset, I was looking at the dates from the time you... um, 
you were kind of coerced by a um, public defender attorney to plead guilty on the argument that you'd get off with a reduced sentence, which turned out not to be the case at all. But right. ultimately, when your case was reheard and the judge looked at all the facts and said, you know, this guy is really more of a victim of circumstances than the perpetrator of first or second degree murder. And he announced that he was going to commute the balance of your sentence and you were now suddenly a free man, having been first incarcerated in 1977. You walked free in 2012. As I say, so much of the world had changed. That must have been a a difficult, at least at, at first glance, a difficult transition for you yeah um well thanks for having me on your uh, show and so appreciate that i definitely one of the things that i i tell people that i um you know obviously uh, 10 years into my sentence uh someone had the courage to come up to me and and uh invite me to a revival service that was going on in prison in 1986 i had about nine and a half years in this in on the life sentence and i i went over to this service and and uh, i heard the gospel that jesus died and was buried rose again and he he in him there's eternal life you know and the guy said real men make commitments and i man i made a commitment three days later it took you know hearing the gospel for three days straight that i just it went so the historical character too yeah he, he he did it he did it for other people and then it came to a point where it was personal that i sat there in that pew and i and i I could not get away knowing that jesus died for me and rose again and he has given me eternal life so i I was born again and saved and i just uh, um could not you know i could not imagine life without the lord but along the way I, i just realized that relationships are the most important uh, thing about life. You know, projects are going to fade, trophies, uh, accolades, certificates, accomplishments, they're going to fade away, but uh, relationships that we build are eternal. So that was my, that was my, um, you know, that was kind of my foundation of, of walking with the Lord is build relationships and share uh, this, this testimony that, that, the Lord saved me and delivered me from drugs and, and all the other garbage that I got involved in. And um, I'll tell you what, when I got out of prison, I had a lot of friends and a lot of relationships waiting for me, which really made the transition so much easier. There was, there was like you said, the cell phones, never saw, never held a cell phone before, uh, bank accounts, driver's license, all those things I had to uh, cross that bridge and and I was I was really grateful that I had some good friends and family members to you know to walk with me, and I had a lot of questions. <laughs> you know, I asked a lot of questions. So, how, how does the world function? Uh, you know, post post Jimmy Carter administration. <laughs> now, yeah. I'm curious, Gene. You know, I, looking at your your life pre incarceration and then during that period of time, particularly in the first 10 years of ultimately the 35-year sentence that you served, I'm struck by the fact that going into this, you didn't seem to be a bad kid. You weren't necessarily a churchgoer, but you'd been a star athlete in high school. You were only 17 years old at the time that this robbery and murder was committed, which, for the benefit of listeners, um, Gene, in fact, did not participate in. He, he was there. He was in a car waiting outside, had no idea, ultimately 
ultimately what his cousin was up to. But I can imagine for someone that's 17 years old, you got your whole life ahead of you, and you yeah. go on trial for a murder that you did not technically commit, and you were handed down a life sentence, that must have been to a 17-year-old felt like eternity. Uh, even when, when my attorney, public defender, like 90 days into my arrest, he had told me the best thing I could do is plead guilty to murder. I could be out in 10 years. And so I couldn't even imagine being 21 at the time, you know, and, and uh, I, so I did by counsel, you know, his advice. And, you know, I, I didn't have any outside counsel or any, anybody else to advise me. I, you know, I was, I was in a juvenile center with, you know, 10, 12, 13 year olds. And I was often a small little, you know, 15, uh, uh, cell juvenile center. So I really had nothing that nobody to draw from or, you know, um, as far as the courts and what, what should I do? And some of the jailhouse stuff you can get in the bigger prisons where guys are, you know, always schooled in the law library. But so I played guilty and six months later he sends me to life without possibility of parole. In my mind, I'm thinking I'm going to do 10 years. You know, I was just so naive and I was so ignorant. Until, you know, I got to the state prison the next day, I turned 18, uh, and then the next day they transported me to adult corrections facility, and I started meeting other lifers uh, in, in Pennsylvania, uh, where I served my sentence. Uh, life means life. There's no parolable eligibility. And uh, so they were, they were like, young buck, you're going to die in here like the rest of us. And and uh, once I called my attorney to go back to court, and he, he pretty much, uh, in a half-hour phone call, he gave me a reason why not to. He told me I'd get more time. And um, so I just kind of defeated, and I hung up the phone and went back to my cell. And, like, you know, there's there's one avenue for lifer. It's it's a, it's called commutation uh, through the Board of Pardons and the governor. It's very difficult, very political, and it, it, it takes merit to to go that route it's not a legal matter you know and so you you know you you stay briefly your crime uh your responsibility your remorse uh where you go work uh home plan support and you file this petition and then you you, you know you hope that they would see something you know worthy of of you being commuted from life in prison to life on parole so I was turned down numerous times, five times over the course of 20 some years, I was turned down and until finally there was that new, um, in 19 or 2010 kind of jumping all over the place here in 2010, there was a, a Supreme court ruling Graham versus Florida. And they, the, the Supreme court ruled on a case of a non homicide, uh, a non murder case that they sentenced the, a juvenile to life without parole. Um, and uh, the court said it's unconstitutional to sentence a juvenile to life without parole for a non-homicide because of brain development, you know, and there's there's proof of MRIs. And, you know, when you ask a kid, what were you thinking? They're like, I don't know, because they don't think consequently. So anyway, it opened the door for me to go back into the court, and that's what opened up the door for uh, a new attorney to discover that my original attorney, um, who died early on, he was a young guy, and, and it was I was his first homicide case. <clears throat> he died, and they were fortunate. They, they were able to find some transcripts and records and notes and discovered that he had basically lied to me and pled me into an illegal plea agreement, and I had an unconstitutional sentence. 
And but you know, you still had to have a DA degree and, and a judge, and in in over twenty months period, uh, by April of two thousand twelve. When I went back into the courtroom, same courtroom where I was sentenced at 17, I was sitting as 52 years old, and both the DA and a judge agreed uh, on the case, and then they sentenced me to 34 years, nine months, 15 days time served, and I was free to leave the courtroom without any restrictions. And of course, the irony is, and I want to get into this when we come back from the break for the mm-hmm. benefit of listeners, um, people think, wow, what an amazing story. So Gene is saying essentially that after 35 years, the judge banged his gavel on top of the uh, the dais or the, the desk there and declared penalty erased. But for Gene, that wasn't the first time that he had a penalty, a life penalty erased. We'll talk about that. Our conversation today with Gene McGuire. A book, Unshackled from the Ruins to Redemption, and a subsequent book called Life After Unshackled, as our conversation continues here on KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're back with Gene McGuire, his book Unshackled from Ruins to Redemption and a a new subsequent book kind of updating you on what's been going on in his life and ministry called Life After Unshackled. And Gene, of course, the irony is we talked about before the break uh, here, you had been handed down a life sentence um, at 17 years old for effectively a murder that you did not commit. um, And and that undoubtedly to a 17-year-old feels like eternity. Ten years into your experience, and oddly, some of the worst behavior in your entire track record didn't take place pre-prison or post-prison, took place in that first ten years. Tell us how you were reached for Christ, and how did you go about um, ultimately, of course, being uh, having that, that life sentence commuted, but the most important life sentence, um, eternal damnation, you got commuted uh, while you were just 10 years into prison. Tell us about that. Absolutely. You know, I, I've I heard the gospel a couple of times. People have sent me Bible tracts, so I read them, and, and then there was a few Christians on my cell block that would, you know, uh, stand at my bars and, and, and talk to me. But uh, there was a weekend revival service in 1986. It was called Prison Invasion 86, and it was about 30 churches from the Harrisburg area, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania area. They had been, they had been uh, praying and planning on invading the prison with the gospel, and, and they had permission to come in early in the morning and they were they it was about a hundred men, and they were allowed to walk the compound, go into the chow hall, uh, go to the yard, and come on our cell blocks. And they would just share testimonies with us, and then of course say, "Hey, we're having services. I come on over." So I I was you know I heard that, and I was invited. I went over on a Friday night, and I heard the gospel, and you know the music team challenge, and it was like. I'm like, wow, this is this is pretty cool. But when when the man said uh, real men make commitments, I did not make a commitment, and it really bothered me. I left. I went back the second night. Uh, of course, I run into guys throughout the prison that are you know from the outside community. They're just walking around and preaching the gospel and sharing what Christ did for them. Um, and that night, I heard the gospel again. And you know, Jesus died on a cross according to the Bible, buried. Rose again, according to the Bible, sent us, you know, sent it to heaven, sent us the Holy Spirit to live a powerful life. And now I'm thinking, man, I, I need something in my life because I, I mean, I was involved in the drug scene in the prison and 
uh, wheeling and dealing and all that. Um, and then, of course, that that night, um, I met a guy. He told me that he got saved at four years old, and he said God called him to be a missionary at five. And when I heard that, I was like, man, why, where am I at? I'm not where I'm supposed to be. But again, I didn't make a commitment at night. And then Sunday morning, I go back over a little bit reluctant. And I remember sitting in the last pew of this of the church. And I figured if I got too nervous, I can leave. And I heard the gospel. I couldn't go forward. I couldn't go backwards. I, I couldn't move. And I just, I, I realized at that point that Jesus died for me. And I was, I was the guy that needed a savior right there. So somehow, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I got up out of the pew, went up front, and, and uh, met some counselors. Just prayed a simple prayer, asking Christ to forgive me and uh, come into my life and be the Lord of my life. And, and our Heavenly Father forgave me. And, and I just knew right then something happened. I knew I was born again, and I began reading my Bible and studying the Word. And so whatever I learned, uh, whatever I learned, I put it in my heart and applied it and I would teach others and and without intentionally doing it um, as far as starting a ministry uh, ministry began in the prison system uh, which (coughs) excuse me (coughs) which went another 25 years until I got out and that's what I'm doing today in the prison system is what I'm doing. So you effectively share your story and, and you, you know, talk about a great example of grow where you're planted and, yes. you know, just make yourself available. You know, God is not looking for professionals. He's not looking for experts. He's not looking for know-it-alls. He's just looking for give-it-alls, people that are willing to give it all and surrender and say, I'll go where you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do. You're kind of captive audience anyway, so you learned how to grow when you were planted. And walk us through in the couple of moments that remain, Gene, at the point at which um, there had been an opportunity to make your case yet once again before a judge. And you explained earlier some of the the changes at the Supreme Court level. And ultimately, the gavel came down and the judge announced, let the man go. I know your sister was there and she practically Mm -hmm. climbed over chairs (laughs) to get to you. Uh, That that sense of, it had to have been, and when people talk about the experience of what it's like to be born again, but but for you, it must have been a sense of being set free twice over. What was that feeling like? It really was very emotional and very, very grateful. I remember just saying, thank you, Judge. Thank you. Thank you. As he, as he, you know, um, he he never, well, the one thing he never did, he never hit the gavel and he walked off the bench, which um, I'll tell you right now, we went after, a couple of days later, I went back to the courthouse and the officials uh, that were running the courtroom, we sat down with them and had coffee and I thanked everybody for supporting me and they told me that, uh, did you notice that the judge never closed the court? And I was like, no, I said, am I, am I still free? You know, it was kind of, and he said, no, you're fine. He so he said he went back in, uh, the officials, uh, Jim said he went back in the, the judge's office and said, hey, you never closed the court. And he says, I, I didn't want anybody to see me crying. Um, and and then later I, I met him and he said it was the right thing to do. So I, uh I was so emotional. I remember, you know, my sister hugging me and my niece and nephew. I had like 50 friends and family members in the courtroom. And that's when, you know, it got real quiet for a minute. And it, as, it seemed like it got real quiet and someone yells, unshackle him, release him from the chains. He's a free man. 
it was like this voice that you know rang across the courtroom over and they shook, took the shackles and the chains off me and, and uh, they gave me some clothes and said Mary uh, they said Gene go change Mary take your brother home and so we were just between smiles and laughing and crying hysterically it was just unbelievable emotional and I like you said I was just like I felt like I walked into another dimension another room where you know he said you know you're free to go you're free today this date you're free and it was like oh my word i you know it's just it's just so emotional and i was just so grateful um that everything i as i kind of was in the moment i was thinking back of how everything added up and the people were praying for me and i was always praying too and uh that the prayers resulted in where we're, I was standing at right there in that uh, Wyoming County Courthouse in Pennsylvania as a free man. And you have gone on, as we've shared, to uh, share your testimony. You go to men's groups. You go and talk to um, youth groups. You go and talk to kids at high schools, kids that are even in um, juvenile uh, detention programs to uh, to give them an insight give them some wisdom and most importantly give them the good news and it, it's exciting that you've had a, a chance to uh, to get a whole third lease on life from a life sentence to receiving eternal forgiveness to now being uh, having two sentences effectively commuted one by the way we all share if we're outside of the bonds of christ and if you want to get more information as i mentioned jane's got a couple of books out unshackled from ruins to redemption his first book and then uh, more subsequent and recent life after unshackled and both information available uh, for you on the web at genemcguire.org. That's Gene, G-E-N-E, genemcguire.org. And Gene, we appreciate the time and you sharing a bit of your story and uh, what a blessing it is to know that you have not only been unshackled but twice forgiven as well. Thank you so much for your time. 5.30 from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I mentioned at the outset of tonight's program that October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, a topic that um, is a sensitive one for me because within my family, my, uh, my godmother had been diagnosed with breast cancer. This is first in the 1970s and uh, subsequently had a partial mastectomy. And then about 20 years later, it reared its ugly head for a second time. And uh, ultimately, she ended up succumbing to a different form of cancer, ovarian cancer. Uh, but there's an alarming rate of women in America that for all the knowledge that we have are continuing to be um, diagnosed with breast cancer year after year. And by the way, an issue that only that doesn't only affect women but even men last year alone 250,000 breast cancers were diagnosed and it happens year after year after year to give us some insights and to talk about some also very fascinating research into areas where potentially you can short circuit the risk of your daughter someday being diagnosed with breast cancer by controlling her consumption of certain types of foods prior to and during puberty. We'll get details from my guest tonight, Dr. Stephen Quay, MD, former Harvard Medical School and Stanford School of Medicine professor, recognized authority in the area of breast cancer research. And Dr. Quay, thank you so much for being with us today. I, I suppose when we hear about these rates, quarter of a million 
people diagnosed every year with breast cancer. Um, part will argue that that's because of, of better uh, better detection and earlier detection, things of this sort. But is there any sense of cause for uh, uh, alarm that this is uh, suggesting a rise in the number of cases overall? Uh, hi, Craig. It's it's great to be with you here. So a uh, lot to unpack there. I mean, <clears throat> there's going to be one diagnosis every minute while you and I are having this interview. So uh, it is a it is an epidemic. Uh, it is increasing slightly. There's a slight diagnostic reason for that. But it also it may be it may be the um, the environment is changing in ways that increase the risk of breast cancer. But it's a very old disease. I'm the CEO of Atosa Therapeutics and Princess Atosa was the first woman in recorded history with breast cancer 450 BC. Um, her slave cauterized it. It didn't go well, but we're dedicated to both preventing and treating breast cancer uh, uh, now here for almost a decade. Let's talk about arenas, both in terms of preventing as well as detection. And of course, certainly women are encouraged uh, to, to do self-examinations. But what about the idea of, of going in and having mammograms? How early should that start? And for the average woman, what should the typical cycle look like in terms of how often that, uh, that testing or diagnosis procedure should be conducted? Yeah, yeah. So, so look at and just again to, to back up here. So, I, I founded this company about a decade ago on the premise of why isn't there a Pap smear for breast cancer? History of the Pap smear is there were 115,000 cervical cancers in 1954. Uh, a, a Greek uh, pathologist named George Papanikolov, beautiful last name, but they shortened it to Pap. Uh, noticed that there's a 10-year progression under the microscope of changes in the cervix that lead to cancer. That 10-year window allowed the rest of the world, the rest of the medical world to come in and intervene. And we're now down to 15,000 cervical cancers. So I said, why can't we do the same thing for breast cancer? Because it undergoes the same biological changes. So um, our, our big component, our big proponent is in prevention, not necessarily in treatment, specifically on mammograms. So a woman, unless she has a really strong family history or she has an Eastern European heritage that could suggest she's an Ashkenazi Jewish background, or one of those two kind of prevalent cases. She should sort of not think about breast health until she's 40, uh, and then have her first mammogram at 40, um, and then uh, have them sort of every year or every other year, depending on, on uh, kind of what her physician, you always rely on your physician, don't rely on, on Dr. Cuellar on the, on the radio, So, but whatever the physician recommends. But um, that's kind of the cycle that I, that I like to see. It's very important, though, that women make sure they get two pieces of information from their mammogram. <clears throat> It's obviously whether or not there's something there that needs to be followed up. Uh, that'll come in a letter and probably a phone call where they... But also understanding the background density of the breast. The density is graded in A, B, C, D. A is rather dark, so very little density in the in the mammogram. D is the most density. It's like other the mammogram is all white. Um, and there's a about an eightfold increase in cancer between women with a D density versus A. You can't feel density on a on a you know physical exam or there's no difference in sensation. It's something in the mammogram itself. But by asking that information, they can understand their risk profile. And then there are lifestyle changes you can do if it's your increased risk. And we're doing a clinical trial for a, a drug that we think that we hope would allow six months of treatment to reduce the density and reduce the incidence of future cancer. One of the things that caught my attention, and and I want to 
have you share this insight and knowledge with our listeners. We talk about the matter of early detection and, of course, to the degree to which we can also engage in the lifestyle modification that can reduce the incidence or the likelihood of a woman ever being diagnosed in the first place, I think is critically important. You have an article talking about a connection between certain types of foods, largely those that are very heavy and chemical preservatives, things of this sort that fit largely in the so-called fast food category, as well as grilled food. And we know that certain types of grilled food, there can be byproducts of carcinogens that, frankly, is probably not really healthy for any of us. But that said, in particular, you've made a tie-in with some of these elements of diet and, in particular, how it affects pubescent and prepubescent girls. Talk to us about that. Yeah, yeah. And let me give you a slight correction there. So the, 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 the findings in this study tie together something that I've been talking about for almost 20 years, which is that the time of puberty when the, you know, you basically a, the breast of a, of, a, of a girl who, you know, pre-puberty girl has literally one, one little cell for each of the 12 to 14 lobules that will end up forming the breast. Each lobule, lobule makes milk and then the ducts go to the nipple and then that's how you, you feed your children. So there's 12 cells to make 12 lobules to make an adult breast. And, you know, over a three to four or five year period of time, all of that is going on. And that's a lot of cell division and a lot of mischief, a lot of genetic mistakes can happen in that period. So that window of time for parents is, is really a, a very important one, a vulnerable period, in my opinion, 20 years ago. I said, this. so for example, you would, unless it's absolutely, absolutely desperately needed, uh, I would never x-ray the chest of a of a girl going through puberty. You know, you, you get a cold, you get a, and then the first thing they do is they want to get a chest x-ray. I, I strongly don't recommend it. So what this paper does was look at the diet aspect. So it's not quite the preservatives. It's something very specific, Craig. It's, and it's very interesting if, from a scientific point of view. So if you take proteins or or so you got macronutrients. These either a protein, a piece of meat, or or fats, or something like that. You add some sugars, and then you cook it at very high temperature. That's the combination. So what you need to think about is the skin of the turkey at Thanksgiving, right? And it's the probably the most one of the most tasty things for humans that ever existed. I think that I think we evolved that because we were, you know, if you didn't cook your food really harshly, you might die from food poisoning before uh, before refrigerators. But anyway, the combination of proteins and lipids and sugars and high temperature leads to these things called AGE. They're all capital letters. It's got a fancy name, but basically they're a bunch of chemicals that do really bad things to the kidneys. They do bad things to the brain. And now in this paper, they do bad things to the breast during during puberty. And what they do is they produce atypical hyperplasia, which is stage two of the four stages that lead to carcinoma in situ and then invasive cancer. So it takes eight mutations, it takes 20 years, it takes... um you know, a lot of steps. But if but if you're 16 and you've just gone through puberty and you've done nothing but eat, say, you know, at a fast food restaurant every day or, or for your for the last four years, you might be one stage or two stage into the four stages to get the cancer. So fast food elimination in that time frame, at least, is a really good idea for. And so, you know, I'm on a school board of a, 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 of a, of a school here and we have a lunch program and we're going to we're going to go in and we're going to actually try to eliminate these there's a there's a non-invasive skin test you can take a little device and put on the skin and measure the age chemicals in our 
puberty, you know, girls going through puberty and that. And well, we're going to do a study where we try to uh, really eliminate the, you know, the mac and cheese and the pizzas and all the things that really taste good because we evolved to, t- to like that taste, but which really aren't good for us. And, and ultimately, I'm going to say, you know, aside from the, the tie-in, as, as you're pointing to, um, related to cancer, it's just good, better health for our, our overall well-being and, 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 and so many aspects of organs that are just going to be happier. And if you cannot develop the fast food habit uh, in the first place, even better. For folks, doctor, that want to go a little bit deeper and get more information, particularly as there's a, an increased sense of awareness of breast cancer during the month of October, where can they get more information about your work? So I have a website. It's www. Dr. Quay, which is D-R-Q-U-A-Y dot com. And um, I do a, I do a weekly, um, you know, health tips uh, if you sign up, you know, for the for that. And, and I, I post things from time to time. So um, I was active in COVID and, you know, actually testified in Congress about COVID to, to help with some of the vaccine issues and some of the other things. And breast, but breast cancer has been the focus of my company for 10 years. Uh, I've actually invented seven drugs in 22 different fields of medicine. So... Wow, good good to talk to somebody who knows their stuff, and and indeed, uh, Doctor Quay does, and and of course, spend time even here in California at Stanford School of Medicine. Doctor Stephen Quay, former Harvard Medical School and Stanford School of Medicine professor, recognized authority in the arena of breast cancer research. Information available on the web about his good work at Doctor Quay. That's D R abbreviation D R Q U A Y dot com. Doctor Quay dot com. Doctor Stephen Quay. Thanks so much for the time and the advice. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're back to the conversation. And uh, don't forget, coming up in about uh, 10 minutes, uh, we're going to be visiting today with Pastor Manny Pereira in the uh, 6 o'clock hour in our weekly Church of the Week event, our conversation. And uh, boy, you're going to be in for a real treat. I have a little bit of a preview of, of coming attractions, so to speak. So stay tuned for that. Pastor Manny Pereira coming up momentarily in the 6 o'clock hour. Right now, though, we check in the world of... Uh, fighting for First Amendment rights and trying to save the Constitution from being torn to shreds. Always on that front line is our dear friend, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus. And as always, Counselor, great to have you join us. Now, you know, I think of of states like Washington and Seattle, pretty much like California, pretty liberal, generally has had a reputation for sort of a live and let live sort of attitude. I guess if you wanted to draw parallels between Seattle and any other metropolitan area, probably looks like the San Francisco Bay Area, which is why I find it fascinating that the city um, during the height of COVID would not only compel city employees to take a COVID vaccine unless of course, they had applied for a, uh, an accommodation. And yet, here's an example of a case of someone who matched that description, had objections, applied for an accommodation. Same one that had been granted to a number of city employees, apparently without scuffle or, or fuss. But in the case of your client, David, it was a different story. Tell us what happened and why. Yeah, this was really outrageous. Uh, this employee, uh, he had, uh, you know, strong personal convictions against uh, taking the vaccine, and uh, and you know, of course, he's you know he made his request made you know very clear in writing, and yet 
he was denied uh, in any kind of attempt to accommodate his religious beliefs. Hey, let me interrupt uh, there because I want to add some color to this because what really caught my attention about this story of David Bodie is the fact that you know, if if the city wanted to come in and say, well, look, he works in a department that's, you know, surrounded by, you know, vulnerable older adults. And, you know, he, he's constantly in, in, in very close proximity to people that were they to catch COVID could, you know, be at, at, at risk for severe illness, possibly even death. He might say, well, all right, you know, it doesn't match the religious accommodation, but OK, at least we could argue that there was an attempt buried somewhere in there to do right. But that isn't quite the case with David, is it? <laughs> no, it's not. Uh, and not at all. And, and uh, you know, he was someone who worked outdoors. And uh, so <laughs> that's what makes this, this so peculiar that, uh, you know, that they would find any kind of a risk with someone who works outdoors. You know, you've, you know science and medicine, it says, makes it very clear that, you know, if you're outdoors, um, you have such a, a diluting of any possible spreading of the virus. You know, initially we didn't know. Initially people panicked. I get that. But the employer knows full well that, that he was not at risk of spreading it. And, uh, and he, you know, even, even then he was someone who uh, even had a natural immunity. So he was actually better than those who were vaccinated. But um, that's science. That's fact. And uh, they were basing their decision on something else, which I believe is unfortunately all too common, which is a disrespect for people of, of faith and religious convictions. Uh, especially those who are part of what I call the, the new Vax cult. And full full disclosure here, Counselor, if you would please, uh, are you suggesting then that you were not concerned of any potential risk to the trees that he would come in contact with? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You got to explain yeah. that, uh, Brad, to the to the audience because that that feels like an inside joke, and it isn't really because, but it adds more color to the severity of the approach taken by the city of Seattle. Yeah, I mean, he's an arborist. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, you got to protect those trees. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and um, I, I can assure you if he thought that he was in any way endangering any of those trees, he would have uh, taken more corrective action. But the thing is, he was so reasonable, so level-headed, um, you know, willing to, to work with them. Uh, but the bottom line is this, this mindset, <laughs> Craig, that we see across the country, private sector, public sector, especially in the government, where it's almost a cultic perspective where um, if someone doesn't bow the knee and get this vax, uh, they're, they're, you know, we're not going to attempt to accommodate you. We're going to ignore Title VII, and we're just going to purge people who don't agree with our way. And that's, that's not what the civil rights statute was, was for. It's to protect people um, who have sincere religious And there's so many Americans that we at Pacific Justice right now are representing all across the country and uh, this this case, uh, fortunately, has turned out to be a, a solid victory for our client. It will hopefully send uh, signals loud and clear to uh, other employers and cities 
uh, not to try this, but to quickly uh, rehire and settle these matters. And, you know, what's particularly problematic about this, and as much as I drew the comparison between the Bay Area and Seattle earlier to suggest that, you know, liberal, open-minded, they should not be uh, at all have an issue with an arborist who who says, I'd like to have a religious accommodation, but au contraire, that just because they are will present themselves as being liberal and open-minded doesn't mean that they are fair-minded. In fact, quite often it demonstrates a decided hostility toward people of religious faith, and this certainly demonstrated in this uh, this victory um, in the uh, the city of Seattle, state of Washington, uh, garnered by Pacific Justice Institute. And of course, Brad, you guys do this all day. I mean, this is kind of SOP for Pacific Justice Institute and standing up for people and individuals and churches, too, uh, that to one degree or another have, have been victims, have been on the receiving end of uh, discrimination largely based on faith. Oh, absolutely. In fact, I think we have more cases than any other organization across the country defending people in the workplace being discriminated against because of their faith and being purged because of the, from the workplace because of their faith. And, uh, you know, to, to really hit this point, you know, very strongly with the city of Seattle, we not only agreed to a financial settlement for our client, um, and I can't give the details on that, but we also require them to agree to, to train their employees, all their employees, on religious liberties and anti-discrimination policies that apply to people of faith. Uh, in the workplace, uh, we're we're trying to uh, to uh, set up Seattle as a model for other cities to follow and not to fall into the same trap. Well, we certainly appreciate you standing up for uh, individuals that have had their rights trampled on that, that in many cases are not in a position to be able to go to bat and defend themselves uh, at a state court level or, or, God forbid, should it become necessary at the, the appellate or uh, circuit court or even uh, worse yet, Supreme Court level. And yet Pacific Justice Institute exists to do just that, and they do all of their wonderful work pro bono. So if you want to get more information, not only related to this story and others, or maybe if there's an aspect of what we've just shared with you that sounds terribly familiar because it's happening to you right now, reach out to the Pacific Justice Institute. You'll find them online at pacificjustice.org. That's pacificjustice.org. Or even better still, as you're thinking about your end of year giving, we're here in the fourth quarter. Holidays will be here. We've got a lot of stuff you're thankful for. Want to kind of get in that uh, final opportunity at some tax write-offs during the conclusion of this year. Think about considering a gift to support the ongoing work of the Pacific Justice Institute online at pacificjustice.org. Our thanks to constitutional lawyer, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus, for that update. Six o'clock from KFAX. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. 
Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. Salemnow.com.